Travis runs KCI Research. Super excited to have him on Investing Experts today. Been wanting to have him on for a while. Great to have you on Investing Experts, Travis. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, terrific to be here. Thanks for the invitation and looking forward to kicking off uh, 2024 with a good podcast. Absolutely. Likewise, likewise. So talk to listeners who aren't familiar with your work, KCI Research on Seeking Alpha. You also run an investing group called The Contrarian. If you want to share with our listeners what they might expect from you as an investor or as a strategist or as an analyst. Yes, we've um, been active on Seeking Alpha for a long time. Eli Hoffman actually came up with the name The Contrarian. He and I were oh, in nice. discussion, so that was a nice... I was think, That's a nice throwback. Yeah, I always think fondly of that when when I, I think back to that. But we've been publishing on Seeking Alpha for roughly 10 years now publicly. There's a good public archive of articles. Sometimes we'll write more frequently, you know, as, as things come up you know in, in terms of that are topical or, or or with reference and then with the contrarian we've been doing that since december of 2015 now so there's there's quite a history there we're known for our you know obviously with the contrarian we go against the grain at times um we've been involved heavily with value oriented investments commodity investments but we're we're go anywhere investors we will look for opportunity anywhere i mean we were looking heavily last year you know, in, in November of 2022 at things like Redfin that had just been beaten up, you know, on the technology side. And so we're, we like to say that, um, you know, anything's fair game for us as long as we see perceive value there. Mm -hmm. So looking at the market these days, what are you, is, is there a sector or is there a group of stocks or is there something that you're particularly focused on these days? Yeah, we're still, um, you know, our, our focus is still in uh, the value arena, the commodity arena. And it's, you know, if you go back to the heart of the pandemic, the broader equity market bottomed on uh, March 23rd of uh, 2020. And since then, you know, the Invesco QQQ trust is up 143% roughly. Mm -hmm. The S. Uh, SPDR, S&P 500, ETF, SPI is up roughly 119%. But if you look at the the uh, oil and gas exploration and production ETF, it's up 345%. The large cap energy sector, uh, Spider XLE, is up 284%. The materials and mining, XME, is up 318% roughly. So if you look back to that, Point in time, which I think was a very important time for various reasons. I think you can see that the the structural or sec secular bull markets that are ongoing today, you know, there's been clear outperformance in in certain you know areas of the market, and it's it's funny because the in you know the investor attention is still very much focused on uh, technology stocks, and you know the queues were up last year. Um, they were up almost 55%, which was a terrific year, but they had been down, you know, quite a bit the year prior. And and something like, I was looking just before a call, the uh, SPY is only up a little over 2% if you go back to January 1st of 2022. So I think there's a clear area where there's new secular bull markets, you know, that, that are happening kind of hidden in plain sight. And 
the the nice thing is is that investors as a whole as a whole their focus is still really not on that arena at, at times because of the performance of certain equities or certain sectors people will chase performance there but by and large people are still focused on really what were the the bull market winners from like 2009 to 2021 you know which was a tremendous bull market for the the broader equity market so would you say that retail investors are more consumed with, like you just mentioned, kind of recency bias? And so you're able to capture what they're not focused on. When do you, A, would you agree with that kind of synthesis of, of your strategy? And then also, how do you know when it's about to turn? How do you know when your contrarianness is is encroaching more towards, you know, common common approach yeah those are those are great questions well and and the market trends can run really long you know i just mentioned that this last bull market really ran from after the great financial crisis in march of of 2009 through 2021 is what i would define it as that's a long time frame and um you know so i think the new bull markets that we're in i think they're going to run similar time frames you know 10 plus years so um, to answer the first part of your question, I think it's natural investors, and I've seen it throughout my career professionally and, and since I've been at Seeking Alpha, but people chase performance. It's just human nature, right? And I mean, there's it depends when you start chasing performance. If you started buying Microsoft in 2012, you know, the free cash flow yield was 15% and it had this huge runway ahead of it. So if you were chasing the performance of 9, 10, 11, 12, and, and buying those type of stocks back then, you had a lot of runway in front of you. So you didn't really want to be contrarian, you know, going against the grain of what everybody was buying at that point. So, you you know, I, I like to use the saying that, you know, a good contrarian will be contrarian, you know, 20% of the time at very important inflection points. And, you know, 80% of the time you really want to run with the herd. I still think we're, you know, three years in now to what these new structural bull markets are. I don't think they'll be adopted, you know, for it's going to take longer for investors to notice the outperformance. And because of the nature of, you know, we often focus as investors on the calendar year returns and, and 2022 is just really tough for the broader equity market. But then you had this bounce back in 2023 and people, you know, people forget like ARC was down, you know, the ARC Innovation ETF was down 67% in 2022 and it really topped in, in the early 2021 ARC came back last year, you know, and had had a really good year, up 69%. But if you had owned it cumulatively, you know, over those two years, you were still down quite a bit. So it's easy to lose focus of what is really outperforming, you know, um, unless you take the, the, you know, five or 10 year bigger picture view of what, what is happening. Mm-hmm. And how do you approach the macro part of it? Or how does that um, I mean, I know that you're you've you've spoken about it up until now, but in terms of macro data, how does it inform um, how you're looking at stocks and how you're looking at the market in general? Well, it's incredibly important, and and you saw it in 2022 and 2023. I mean, in 2022, you saw interest rates move higher, and it's if you go back, I mean, it's easy to forget because there's so much news. And, and you forget the narrative. I, I always say narrative halt, you know, uh, narrative false price. But if you go back to December of 2021 and you looked at what the Federal Reserve was predicting, they were predicting three 25 basis point interest rate hikes in 2022. 
three, you know, so 75 basis points in total. And as we know, you know, in 2022, at various times, they were raising interest rates, 75 basis points per meeting, you know, not just for the whole year. So the macro was important, you know, sentiment's very important um, as well. But, you know, 2022, you saw interest rates across the curve really go up, you know, it was kind of the Fed was chasing inflation and rising interest rates, particularly at the long end, you know, the curve and the, you know, the TLT was down 31% in uh, 2022. That that torpedoed, you know, the broader equity market indices. And then last year, I mean, interest rates, you know, TLT was only up a little bit in, you know, 2023, calendar 2023, it was up 2.4%, but it was down you know, more during the year. And when interest rates turned around um, and yields started going down, that kind of drove, you know, really, it drove the equity rally in the first part of 2023, the first half, and then in the second half, it did as well. So the, the macro is is very important, particularly, you know, how, um, you know, interest rates are really gravity for the other asset classes. But interest rates, what they're doing, what commodity prices are doing, you know, then obviously what the equity market is doing and those three, those three main, you know, uh, asset classes interplay and they uh, impact each other. And another example of that is, you know, if you go back to 2007, you know, the market was pretty bullish because the Fed had cut rates 50 basis points. And then, you know, really oil prices, you know, they took off from the latter half of 2007 into 2008. And that, you know, uptick in, in oil in particular, but commodity prices, you know, that was really ominous for what was going to happen to the broader equity markets. So you you have to be pay attention, I think, to the macro, particularly what's happening with interest rates and commodity prices, and then what their impact is on equity prices. Mm -hmm. Which goes especially well into the REIT sector yeah. um, in terms of looking at yield and interest rates and how that's affecting things, which is something that you've written about in general for 2023 and specifically, um, you know, about REITs and, and, and looking for yield. How would you synthesize for investors how you've been approaching that this year and how you see it going into 2024 if, if that approach um, gets tweaked at all or how it gets tweaked? Yeah, another very good question. So I you know, I'm a generalist. I started, you know, I'm getting older now. So I've, I've, aren't we all? If you had a video podcast, <laughs> you would see the age, the wrinkles on my face, or the gray hairs. You know, I've got quite a few children that are now approaching, some of the older ones are approaching adulthood. But I go back in time to when I was a younger man. And, you know, I started first American United Life in Charles Schwab. And when I was at Schwab circa 1999, 2000, as a broker, registered rep i was advised registered and i was working with chicago equity analytics we were recommending realty income at the time and nobody wanted nobody wanted REITs, you know and it was it's been eye-opening to see the last you know 23 24 years play out because you know REITs went from an unwanted asset class you know circa 99 2000 to one of the asset classes that were embraced most by investors, particularly dividend-focused investors, and they got really popular, and so popular that you know people viewed it as as cornerstone 
equities in the portfolio. And I, I wrote a piece in 2016 that said, you know, specific to realty income, saying that they were great company, but it was the valuation was really high, the opposite of what it was in 2000. And I said, it's going to be hard for them to perform just in line with the market going forward. And sure enough, they've really underperformed since that vantage point. But fast forward to today, you know, REITs really rebounded the second half of 2023 as there was a, you know, the Fed essentially pivoted and Powell pivoted and long-term interest rates came down. And at one point we were pricing in six or seven Fed fund rates cuts for um, 2024. That's been dialed back a little bit, but, you know, uh, something like realty income, but a lot of REITs are really interest rate sensitive and you have to have a view on what longer term interest rates are going to do. And so my view there would be that we had a secular bottom in longer term interest rates, and then we made the initial move higher. And now we've had a pullback. And we're gearing up, though, for another move higher in rates, um, and particularly on the long end of the curve, because I do think the yield curve will steepen because there will be Fed fund rate cuts this year as inflation comes in. But the yield curve will steepen and you could see the long, you know, the 10-year yield in the U.S. go back above 5%, which would put pressure on uh, on REITs in particular. So I think you have to really be a stock picker there. You have to really pay attention to to trading ranges and, again, keep an eye on, on where longer-term interest rates are going. And in terms of the looking at the REITs and picking it apart in terms of which look better than others? How do you how do you advise investors in that way? What should they be looking at? Well, you know, fundamentals are extremely important. Sentiment, you know, I know there's some Avi Gilbert in particular. He's a big advocate of sentiment, and I have to say that he's onto something there. And you know, you saw it this last year. For example, I mean, the office sector was really out of favor, you know, but some of the higher quality office reads. Um. SL Green and Vornado, if you could buy those during the capitulation, you know, which was in that, you know, first half, end of the first half of 2023, there was tremendous opportunities there. So I think you want, you know, like like anywhere in the market, you want to pay attention to, you know, if, if something's overloved and overowned, you know, you have to be careful. And if it's, you know, something's there's capitulation, it's underloved, underowned. You know, everybody doesn't want to be in it. That's usually where there's opportunity. And how do you know the difference between there being opportunity and there being less value than the marketplace, you know, will will ever give it? Yeah, well, a part of that is you want to focus on higher quality assets. And something like Epson Green, mm-hmm. for example, was the biggest, um, you know, office REIT landlord in Manhattan, right? So they had some very high quality assets, Um and that they could command a premium price, obviously in a premium market. So I think in whatever sector of the market you're in, you want to pay attention to owning the best assets. You know whether that's uh, an oil field, whether that's a uh, you know office building, um, you know, or whether that's uh, you know uh, a shopping mall, for example. Here we're I'm based out of Indianapolis and Simon Property Group is you know headquartered right here one of the things that has always helped them is they've owned a majority of the best um, shopping mall assets you know in, in the world and they've consolidated that position 
So I would say whatever asset class you're in, you know, including REITs, you want to focus on, you know, who has the best assets. And normally over a full market cycle, if you own the best assets, you will outperform. And and what makes you get out of a stock? Is it approaching fair valuation? Is it something that's changed in the, I don't know, narrative of, of the stock's journey or management or what have you? Are there certain things that you can point to? Is it kind of the obvious stuff along with what you've mentioned so far? Yeah. So if you if you own, so for example, um, one of our biggest positions in the contrarian still today is Antero Resources. And we were buying it in, you know, the uh, to late 2019, early 2020. And it was just, you know, even though Antero was the second largest natural gas liquids producer, which that's things like propane, butane. And at the time it was, you know, a top five natural gas producer in the U.S. It was just people didn't understand it, you know, so we bought, and many of us still hold that today with, you know, substantial capital gains. And that's part of the reason we haven't sold, right? Because there's tax consequences to holding that or to selling it, for example. But people will say, well, how long will you guys hold it, right? And, you know, we've had to go through a lot of volatility holding it. And we do have a fair value target in mind. And we get close. I mean, some of us did take some off the table because it was it was closer to that at, at different points. But, you know, I think you have to have the mindset, you know, like, like Buffett, you know, he, he Buffett will say that if you don't want to own something for forever, you shouldn't buy it. Right? And right. that's an extreme view, right? Because there's, you have to be really careful of what you're buying if you're going to hold it 10, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. There's a lot of stocks just simply are not around after that time frame. But I think if you go through a full market cycle, which I would say is, you, you know, or if you go through a structural or secular market, you know, that's probably, you know, you're looking at a decade. And, you know, for something to go up, from out of favor to in favor to really, you know, people like it. And then until it's euphoric, that, that can take a long time. So I think you have to have the mindset that maybe there's call it 10 years, you know, that for that process to play out. And, you know, if you go back to realty income, nobody wanted it in 2000, you know, 1990, 2000, because we were at the end of that era's technology bubble. And it really, it had 15, 16 years of just tremendous performance, right? So, but, you know, you could have held on to it, but if you sold realty income um, and, you know, just went back to the the S&P 500, you know, in 2016 or 17, you would have done better at that point, albeit that's, you know, not paying attention to any of the tax consequences that you might have had. So, I, but to answer your question, I think you have to have in your mind that, if you buy something when it's really out of favor and undervalued, you know, it, it could be 10 years until it, it, it goes to the other side of that, you know, the pendulum swinging to the other side where it's overowned and overvalued. And what would you add to that in terms of talking to dividend investors who are looking for, you know, straight up dividend investments? What, what would you add or subtract to, to that advice? Yeah, you. Well, my lesson there would be you have to pay attention. Like, uh, think of the top companies at the end of '99. You know, was Microsoft and GE. You know, were the kind of the top market cap cap companies in the S and P 500. And if you were a dividend investor, 
you know, you you would pick probably one over the other, right? And probably the wrong one. So, you know, over the long term. So I, I think you have to, as a dividend investor, you have to be cognizant of what the, you know, the broader fundamentals are, the broader valuation. Obviously, you want to pay attention to the payout ratio and then, you know, what the debt maturity schedule is. And obviously, if there's turmoil in a sector, you know, you have to be cognizant that even some of the best dividend paying companies can cut their dividends, right? And and we've saw that the last year, um, you know, with, with some, you know, really stalwarts, um, WP Carry would be one that, that cut their dividend and I think actually made made the right choice. But you just always have to have in the back of your mind, you know, what the the overall valuation is, the starting valuation, what the payout ratio is, and then is that dividend at risk at any point. Um, and even if it's not at risk, you know, like again, going back to realty income, if, you know, so many people have bought into the story and, you know, realty income circa 2016, you know, August, 2016 was just, you know, it, it was, it was really loved, right? Well, that starting valuation was poor and they haven't cut their dividend, but, you know, your total returns from that standpoint, you know, um, weren't, you know, even very comparable to what the broader market delivered because you you were, it had been overbid and, and overloved. So you have to have that in the back of your mind as well. And sometimes you feel that a dividend cut isn't necessarily a bearish kind of knock on a stock. It could be the right move by management and something worth yeah, yeah, definitely. In, in, investing through. Yeah. Definitely. And in a perfect recent example of that, and we have in, in the contrarian, we have a stuck on yield portfolio. So we actually bought um, WP Carry and Realty Income on October 4th, 2023. And on a total return basis, WP Carry is actually up. You know, the last update I did was this past weekend, but it was up through that point um, 25%. Realty income was up 18%. So I think the dividend cut to realign the business made sense there for that in that particular instance. Um, obviously, you know, because of the nature of dividends and, you know, I think there is value um, and it's been proven over time of management having a consistent focus on a growing dividend. But the reality of the stock market is it's so volatile that there's decisions that have to be made sometime for the, the greater good of the business. And you're going to get some cuts that, um, that kind of realign the business, you know, to, mm -hmm. to a better spot. So now having said that, I, I do think you have to be wary of, of dividend cuts because that means that, you know, something has changed in the thesis and something, you know, if you've had a uh, company that's had a long history of, you know, on a regular basis, increasing their dividend and they can't do it. You have to kind of reevaluate to see what's going on. Mm -hmm. Are you reassured by management's explanations? Are are there things to parse out in, in terms of management explaining away a dividend cut or a change in guidance? I think you have to be really careful. Over the years, I've learned, I mean, there, it's a double-edged sword, depending on how close you are to management, right? Because management, they have their own incentives and own alignment. And I've, in my stance as an investor, I've taken the stance that I don't think, I don't communicate with management on an active basis, 
because I think that uh, it, it gives you, it keeps you distant, right, from the the Pied Piper siren song that they're they're singing, right. So mm. you do have to. I, having said that, you do have to parse through their communication and the rationale for why they're doing something. And yeah, you want to you want to analyze, you know, what the decisions are, and you know. But I, I think again, it's a double edged sword. I, there's been we have people in our group that talk to management teams, you know, as, as larger investors, and it's been very helpful at at, at times of uh, turmoil, right? In particular. So, but just me personally, I, I prefer to keep a distance, but I, again, you have to pay attention to, you know, the, the regular communication and, and see if they're holding true. You know, that's, I think that's a lot of value of, of evaluating management to see if they're holding true to the things that they've said they would do or, or set out to do. Mm -hmm. Of the companies that you cover in terms of what what's available to every retail investor in terms of earnings calls and however else management is keeping in touch with the investor community are there companies that you could point to uh historically that you feel do a better job than most in terms of conveying truthful information and holding true to their narratives yeah i mean the ultimate example of that is is buffett and berkshire and and charlie mm. munger right because they were transparent um, but I think some of the, in, in general, that's the style of, of management team that you want. I think, um, Alphabet, Google was, you know, they, they modeled themselves after Buffett, right. And, uh, and how they communicated to the market and to the shareholders. Those are two pinnacles of, of how, you know, you would, if you could say management would operate, that's, you know, they're right at the top of the list. Mm -hmm. So looking ahead, we're at the beginning of the year, we're at the beginning of 2024. What other kinds of things are you thinking about or you think would behoove investors to be thinking about or focused on? Yeah, one thing that's at the top of my mind that I try to remind myself of every day is that we're in the golden age. I call it the golden age of active investing because we went through this in my career now, my professional career especially, I've seen the prevalence and the just the you know passive investing and passive investing type vehicles and clones have really taken over the market and fund flows have been driven you know um, by these uh, enormous companies now that have been the recipient of these passive investing inflows. But you know there's there's a quote I like to use from John Bogle in my articles. And he said if if everybody indexed, it would be just you know. The, the market would stop to function. But the before you get to that point, you know, the more people that are indexing or using passive type investments, the more opportunity there is for active investors. And I think we're in that sweet spot right now. And we've really seen it if you go back through the last couple of years, 2020, 2021, 2022, and even 2023, it's been a terrific environment to be an active investor. And I think that that's going to continue you know, for the rest of the decade here. And I think we're going to see some of that continued volatility in, in 2024 is some of the things we've talked about on the macro side. You know, I think interest rates are going to be volatile. You know, I think the yield curve will steepen in, in 2024. And I think commodity prices are going to continue to be volatile. There's been an underinvestment generally in the commodity arena, you know, and 
that's going to drive some of the opportunities and volatility and price action that will, if you're an active investor that can sit back and just say, I have a buying list and I'm waiting for something to happen to bring these prices to me, you know, I think it's a, it's a great place to be as an individual investor today. Speaking of active investing and also using indexes, what what are your thoughts on the ETF space? I mean, there's a preponderance of new ETFs every day, and you know, there's many ways to make it more, uh, um, you know, make make it easier for investors to get into the active investing space. What are your thoughts on ETFs? Are there are there general consensus on the space that you have? Yeah, well, a lot of ETFs, you know, the there's they're just mimicking a um, you know an underlying basket, right? So there's not a lot of thought that goes into the investment process. Now I do think there, as the ETF market has gone, you know, it, it's it's not the same today as it was three or five years ago. As it's as it's evolved, there is an increasing focus on active you know fund management within some of the ETFs and. I think that's a positive trend for individual investors, but I would I would say in general, your advantage, you know, as as an individual investor, somebody reading Seeking Alpha for research, is having a buy list of individual securities, and you know you can sit there and wait, especially now with with uh, you know in the U.S. Treasury bills are paying over five percent, right? So just sitting and waiting for your you know as Buffett would say, you wait for your pitch you know, you wait for the price that's attractive to you and then you can put your capital to work. And if you can't find anything attractive to you, the the beauty of today is that you're getting paid something where you don't have to go out and, and take risk if you don't want to. So more geared towards the less uh, active or more neophyte investor is how you would categorize ETF investing, basically. Yeah, it's changing, you know, and there's, mm-hmm. there's you know, there's certainly... I think the ETF market will look different three, five, seven years from now than it looks today. And it's a function of also, remember what we talked about where investors chase performance. I mean, when I was earlier in my career, if you went to 401k plans or pension plans, they were all actively managed, you know, because people believed you could get alpha out of those and the underlying funds and these 401k plans, they were active, you know, funds. But nowadays, if you look across that broad, you know, complex, most of it's passive. And the reason is, you know, passive has had a tremendous run of of performance on a relative basis. And I think, you know, the ETF marketplace, if you, if you have a good 10 years for active investors, I think the ETF market will have more active ETF, you know, active managers, you know, in 2030 or 35 than they do today. Mm -hmm. After this year, I think everybody's going to want to get QQQ and SPY, you know, for, in perpetuity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Not only this year, but if you think of the last, I mean, for a generation of investors that came of age after the the great financial crisis, I mean, if you just bought the Qs every year, I mean, you've done really well, including SPY yeah. too, right? But the, the Qs in particular have been just tremendous, right? They're tremendous investments. And, you know, I think that era is coming to a close. It probably has ended and we don't even realize it because a lot of times an era will end and you don't realize it till because there's nobody ringing the bell, you know, the proverbial yeah. bell. You don't realize it till three or five or seven years down the line when you look back at at performance. But like, 
you know, the, the Qs did make a new marginal high, but it, they were down a lot in 2022 too. So a lot of these have just effectively gone sideways the last two years. And it's hard for people to realize that right now because we're caught up in the moment of what the performance was in 2023. Mm -hmm. um, and you're not of the opinion that technology is just, just because it's going to keep growing and it's always going to be relevant and, uh, you think that it's not worth getting into. It's something that's going to be, um, it's going to, it's going to turn. Well, I, I, there's always cycles, right? Cause if you think of like Amazon, you know, Amazon came public. I, I forget two or 1997, 98, but it, in 2000 to 2002, even though Amazon was growing, you know, at a tremendous pace, the Amazon stock went down 94% from the peak in 2000 to the bottom in 2002. I mean, think about that 94%. So if, you had put money in Amazon and said, hey, this is, I know this is going to be a terrific investment the next 10 or 20 years. You know, if you put $100,000 into it, for example, I mean, you would have been down, think of that, 94% and 100,000. Not many people can hold through that, right? Mm -hmm. It's just, it's, it goes against um, human nature to see that type of negative return in your portfolio and to hold through it. So, you know, you, we did see a washout in technology, obviously, and really, the, you know, ARC peaked in 2021, the first half of 2021, and obviously the second half of 2021 2022 is really bad. So that there was a fertile hunting ground for to look for opportunities, but I'm not sure that, the, you know, that washout is over yet, right, um, if you compare it to 2000 to 2002. So the good news for investors, especially technology-oriented investors, is I do think that obviously technology, you know, every decade is almost playing a more important role. And that goes all the way back to, the, if you think of the Nifty 50 in the 1970s, I mean, the technology stocks have been a huge part of the stock market for a long time. That'll continue to be the case. And there's going to be tremendous opportunities to sift through the kind of the rubble. You know, just like if you could have bought Amazon in 2002, but I, you know, I don't think we're quite to the end of that. I, I think you're going to have to see the Magnificent Seven, you know, kind of have their own correction. And as that happens, you know, maybe you'll see some of these this next generation of technology leaders. They'll relatively outperform, even though on an absolute basis they still may struggle. But you, you know, you want to put on your research hat and and be looking through opportunities through the, through this kind of you know, turmoil is how I would put it. And if you can find, you know, these terrific companies that are going to lead the next cycle, the next upcycle in technology, I mean, the returns can be tremendous, you know, but it's uh, it's going to be a hard task to to sift through the rubble to find those next leaders because when you, when you should buy them, not many right. people are going to want to buy them, right? It's, right? it's like with Amazon down 94% in 2002, if you we're telling people, hey, this is the time. You know, most if you took a poll of a thousand investors, almost every one of them would have said, "We're going to pass." Right. It's time to build the ark. The time is now. The time is now. I promise. <laughs> um, I'm I'm curious. I I have this uh, cannabis investing podcast, and as I'm listening to you talk about 
kind of this is on the opposite end of the spectrum to, to technology, but speaking to burgeoning sectors like cannabis, like psychedelics, is that are those spaces that you look at to find, you know, they're so uh, underserved and unloved right now. Are those sectors or those areas of the market that you look at? Yeah, and, and indirectly, because we have guys in our group that are, you know, a lot of our group have been seasoned over the years, right? Because we've known each other through the ups and downs and we get new people in and it's just a terrific group. But some of those guys, it, um, you know, are, and gals too, we have a mix of guys and gals, but uh, they'll look at something and we've had some of them look at, because the cannabis space, as you know, from, you know, doing uh, your podcast there has been washed out, right? And we've had people sifting through that looking for opportunity. So um, so indirectly, yes. And then people will say, well, you know, Travis, what do you think about this? Or, and I'll take a look at it. So, um, but that's, you know, just, just like we were talking about earlier, when, when something goes through where, where nobody wants it after, especially after it was, you know, embraced at one point, that's often time, you know, that's often the time of the, the maximum risk reward opportunity. And it's the same type of stuff that is the same metrics that you're using for any other sector or any other stock that's unloved. Yeah. Yeah. You, it, a lot of it comes down to just free cash flow. You know, people said evaluate one thing, you know, it would be, you know, what's the free cash flow that the, whatever business you're looking at is spinning off. Right. And, and then what's, you know, what, what is, you know, a lot of times growth stocks have a, you know, people people look at the total addressable market or the the market size, but you want to see what they're doing with cash. You know, what type of free cash flow they're spinning off, and then you know what what the return of capital looks like to investors. Whether that's reinvesting in the business because there's a big growth runway, or whether that's returning capital back to investors. Very good. Um, I was going to end it with asking you your maybe your best investment lesson or your best investment period and then your worst investment maybe not your worst investment lesson because a lesson is always good inherently but maybe your worst investment that led to a lesson kind of best and worst and but i also wanted to ask if you think that there's anything um that we left out in terms of addressing investors where we are today well i will we'll delve into the best and worst investment lessons and that'll probably it might prompt another question or two but the okay. when, when i look back at my own history the biggest mistakes i've made are selling things too early and oftentimes after i've had a really good return in something right and mm -hmm. so in so it's not the zero because you as an investor, you're going to inevitably have zeros that happen, whether a company, you know, stumbles upon difficulty and goes through a restructuring. And if you haven't had one listening to this, if you do it long enough, you will. Right. And <laughs> it's just it's part. Trust. Yeah, it's part and parcel of, you know, because sometimes you're too stubborn. Sometimes your ego gets involved. Sometimes the business just doesn't you know, operate how you thought it would or the backdrop changes, there's things that are out of your control as investors. So you're going to have things that don't work. But the biggest dollar mistakes I've ever made, you know, is buying something and then, you know, having a good return in it, you know, and then selling it too early because I, I you know, it's, you don't have the patience to see it through. And a lot of, especially compounding investments, you know, if you buy them at a really low price, you might have a really attractive return and you think I could do something better with this money. 
you know, and and then you take it and, but then you look back and say, wow, if I would have just done nothing, you know, and left it there, yeah. it, it, I would have done better off, you know. So the, the, that's kind of eye-opening to me the, as long as I've done it, you know, um, it's over 30 years now professionally, or not quite professionally, but personally over 30, over 25 professionally. It's the biggest mistakes I've made are always selling something too early, you know, and they say you can never go broke by, you know, by by making a profit in something, but the biggest dollar mistakes have always been, you know, selling something too early. And then the other side of the coin, the the best, you know, and, and it's it it's, goes right along with what the biggest mistakes are. The best, um, you know, successes that we've had are when we have been able to demonstrate, you know, an extreme degree of patience with something, right? And we've seen it in our group at the Contrarian. A lot of the value that we derive is in we can moderate some of the impulses that we have you know, to sell or buy something. And if, if it doesn't work, we're there to console each other and, and talk about, you know, what the rationale was originally for the purchase and should we add to it, you know? And so, you know, both of those lessons, the good and the bad, I think boil down to, to having patience. And especially now in today's age, having the ability to stick to something, you know, to be resilient, to have stick to itiveness be persistent it's it's pretty rare so i would encourage investors listening to this to think about that and you know as you evaluate your own good and bad and what you do you maybe reflect on some of the the words that i've spoken here solving for human fallibility no easy task no No not at all yeah um, this has been really, I, I've enjoyed this conversation a lot, Travis. I really appreciate it. I think a lot of great nuggets to keep chewing over and assessing our own strategies and how we approach the markets. So really appreciate it. Um, happy for you to have the final word if you want to share anything, but I'm looking forward to the next conversation. I hope Travis, this has uh, been a great one. I've enjoyed it a lot too. I appreciate your questions and it's made me reflect back on some things. The final word would be embrace I, I use this in my group embrace the chaos embrace the you know the volatility because that's going to create opportunity so whatever comes forward and if you look back through market history there's always things that you know seem crazy with the whatever happens whether it's a news event or volatility but particularly in what I call the golden age of active investing you know you you want to embrace that volatility and so even if it makes you think about something or you know, it makes you take a step back to say, hey, this is good because, you know, volatility is oftentimes opportunity. Very well put, especially in this day and age. Uh, may we all have enough strength and sense to get through the chaos and the volatility. Uh, a lot of insight, I think, to help us through. So really appreciate it again, Travis. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate it too, Rena. You have a great uh, day. Any articles discussed today, you can find links to them on our show notes. And all episodes have transcripts available on Seeking Alpha. And for those wanting to follow breaking news and general news coverage of the markets, come listen with us at Wall Street Breakfast. We have morning episodes released before 7 a.m. Eastern and afternoon episodes. We've got Wall Street Breakfast and Wall Street Lunch for all your market news needs. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. 
If you enjoyed the episode, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app, and we'll see you soon with a new episode.